Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This week has been a big one for trade. And don't worry, you will get an episode about the US-China phase one deal. Some of us have day jobs, and so it may not be out immediately, but it will be out soon. This episode is about the USMCA. Remember that? Yep, that happened this week. And we're going to have some special guests to get into the weeds of what actually took place. We're going to speak with Megan Casella of Politico, Simon Lester of the Cato Institute, and Kathleen Clausen of the University of Miami School of Law. If you hadn't been paying attention, you might have thought that the USMCA, this trade deal between America, Canada, and Mexico, you you might have thought that was done. Uh, But even though it was signed last October, it was definitely not done. Basically, getting it implemented by the US required passing a bill. Passing that bill meant getting it through the US House of Representatives, where the Democrats currently have a majority. So basically, the Trump administration needed them on board. So for months and months, there's been the second phase of negotiations where the Democrats have been demanding changes. And on December 10th, those Democrats, or Nancy Pelosi anyway, said, yes, okay, with with some amendments that we got done, well done by us, this deal is now okay. The AFL-CIO, which is this big labor union group that hasn't positively endorsed a trade deal in nearly two decades— They said okay, too. Just to give a a high-level summary of the amendments, there were weakened intellectual property protections for the pharmaceuticals industry. There were improvements to the general enforcement of the deal. And then enforcement on the environment and labor standards that enforcement was toughened up to. So first, we're going to speak with Megan Casella of Politico. She's been covering these negotiations for all these many months. My first question to her was whether she was sure that we would ever actually get to this point. I was not always sure we were going to get here. It's been a really long process. We've been covering it sort of the ins and outs of it for two and a half years now. And so even as recently as last week, um, the week before the deal was announced, I was still skeptical. I thought there were so many pieces that still had to come together, the number of people that sort of had to sign on and give the okay. So, you know, to me, it looked iffy until it happened. Let's go back to when this deal was first signed back in autumn of of last year. How quickly did it take for the talks with Democrats to, to get going? It really took a while for things to get off the ground between Democrats and the Trump administration. I mean, I think as soon as the midterm elections happened and Democrats took over the House, it became clear there was going to need to be some renegotiating. It wasn't clear whether Democrats would be okay with side deals, whether they would want the text reopened. Canada and Mexico tried to hold firm and say, we're not reopening the text. Um, But there were several months of sort of stalemate, starting with the new Congress came in and immediately had a 35-day shutdown. There wasn't anything happening then. And then once they did reopen, you know, there was a lot of recovering from the shutdown, moving on from there, where do we go next? There was the largest class of freshman Democrats that we've had in a really long time. And more senior Senior lawmakers often said, you know, we need to get these guys up to speed. Don't worry. It's a steep learning curve with trade deals. These Democrats need to figure out how they feel not only about the USMCA specifically, but about trade deals generally. I mean, they hadn't voted on one before and and they knew that this could be a really big vote for them. Okay, so there are months of discussions, 
but take us through what happened in the, the spring of 2019. Because I remember there was quite a, a lot of activity going on back then. So the other big outstanding issue was that there were still steel and aluminum tariffs in place against Canada and Mexico. And they had always said, the three countries had said those were separate from the USMCA, but at one point there had been a promise that they would be removed as soon as a deal was signed, and that hadn't happened. And so we saw some senior Republicans who otherwise would support the deal, like Chuck Grassley, the finance chairman, saying this deal's not going anywhere as long as those tariffs remain in place. So the big break in May was that there was finally a deal after months to remove those tariffs against Canada and Mexico, and then those countries in turn removed the retaliatory duties that they had imposed against the U.S. Okay, so so then we immediately get a deal. We did not immediately get a deal after that. It was less than two weeks, I think it was, after the steel and aluminum deal was struck, that Trump then started tweeting, I believe it started with a tweet, that there were then a new round of threats to impose sweeping tariffs against all goods from Mexico because of totally separate immigration concerns. And it was a very frantic seven to 10 day news cycle. It was pretty brief in the grand scheme of things, but there were so many negotiations. And even though they eventually worked it out before imposing the tariffs, it sort of poisoned the well. Um, And he trampled all over any goodwill he had generated when he lifted those metals tariffs. Okay. Relations then between the US and Mexico are fairly frosty. Um, When do things start really warming up on the US side? In about mid-June, Nancy Pelosi set up what was called the USMCA Working Group. So she tapped eight House Democrats under um, the helm of House Ways and Means Chairman Richard Neal to lead the negotiations. And so through months of talks, they had sort of established their top four issues, labor, environment, enforcement, and uh, drug pricing provisions that they really wanted to see changes on. And they agreed with the administration to focus on those four. So Pelosi tapped two lawmakers for each of those issues, and the eight of them made up the working group that sort of began meeting in earnest in about mid-June. And then outside of Congress, they were sort of leading the negotiations for Congress. And outside of that, we always knew that organized labor was going to be a big player. And AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka is sort of um, the top dog there. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the dynamics of these negotiations? Who amongst all these groups had the power? The power sort of shifted among all three of these parties, right? I mean, the working group was doing the day-to-day, the meeting almost weekly with Lighthizer on the Hill. Neil was in all of those meetings. He was also sort of relaying with Pelosi, but she would often say the working group really was in charge here. But then Trumpko was sort of this known entity that wasn't in every single one of those meetings, but had a huge amount of sway to the point where at some point this fall, when things sort of hit a snag and Congress was leaving for another recess, we talked to Richard Neal and he seemed a little bit frustrated and said, we're making progress. But at this point, I think it'd be really helpful if Richard Trumka sat down with Robert Lighthizer. He was sort of removing himself and saying, we need to get these two parties in the same room. What got agreed first? So surprisingly, we've just found out recently that the first issue resolved was these drug pricing provisions and protections for biologic drugs. So there are these protections written into the USMCA that the U.S. wanted. Canada and Mexico didn't care as much about these provisions, but the The U.S. and the Trump administration really wanted um, what they got was 10 years of protections for biologic drugs, which is a new lucrative class of medicines. Opponents say, so most Democrats say, that those provisions will make it easier for drug manufacturers to keep prices high for too long. And so Democrats from the start were open about their position, and they were saying, we want those protections completely stripped out of the deal. 
And to me and to many reporters who had seen the same protections for biologic drugs take down the Trans-Pacific Partnership in Congress just a few years earlier, that seemed like a very extreme position. And we were sort of talking to ourselves, like, are they really going to, you know, will the Trump administration ever actually agree to this? Or is that really just what Democrats are, you know, coming out with one position and expecting things to sort of get reduced down the road in the process of the negotiation? So we know that ultimately they got it. But my question is, how did this not leak? So what we know now is from talking to Congressman Earl Blumenauer, who led negotiations on on that issue, he says that that was the first and fastest issue that they negotiated, that Democrats came in with that position. And it seems like Ambassador Lighthizer sort of said, "Okay, we'll give you that. But then there was, as there had been for all of these issues, but it seems particularly for biologic drugs, there was so much secrecy surrounding it. They did not want this to get out because there's a really well-funded pharmaceutical lobby that backs a lot of lawmakers. There's a lot of money flowing through Congress on this issue. And they really felt that if news got out too early that these biologic drug protections were removed from the deal, that the pharma lobby might take it down entirely and there might not be a deal at all. Is there any chance that that they could get it taken out? We haven't seen too much pushback from the pharmaceutical lobby yet. I mean, they've sort of put out some statements and said they can't agree to the deal in its current form. They'll no longer back it. And they might be talking to some Republican lawmakers to see if they can sway them against it as well. But at this point, it seems like it's pretty locked in. I mean, all three countries have once again signed this deal, and they might be resigning themselves um, to just you know saying, OK, we're not going to get those protections that we wanted. The other question is, did they get anything in exchange? You know, and we don't know yet if maybe there was some other agreement unrelated to the USMCA, but related to pharmaceutical drugs that might be keeping these companies and these lobbyists at bay. Let's talk about labor enforcement. So there have been rules on labor standards in U.S. trade deals for years, but there have also been these complaints, especially by labor unions, that they're not used all that much because they're they're just impossible to enforce. So who were the major players for this issue in, in these negotiations? The major players here, again, were those House Democrats. It was Richard Trumka. It was Lighthizer and Mexico. It was Mexico's top negotiator, Jesus Seade, who was answering often to Mexican private sector. And the complaint there was that sending American inspectors into Mexican factories is an infringement of our national sovereignty. And blocking goods at the border because there's just one labor or environmental violation is extreme. Um, it will reduce our viability, our profitability, that sort of thing. So it was a really contentious issue that took months to resolve. Were there any other big issues on, on labor? Another issue on the labor front, it was a really low point for the talks actually, was when Mexico unveiled its draft budget and it showed a severe cut to its labor department. Mexico has explained that that's because it was a cut to a totally unrelated apprenticeship program. But when that first came out, lawmakers have said that was a really low point in the talks because Mexico was really unprepared, unable to explain where that cut came from. And it it brought all congressional Democrats together in saying maybe they really aren't going to totally implement these reforms that they promised they were going to implement. How did that get resolved? There was this low point. There were some Mexican officials in Washington who met with Pelosi, and she was very firm with them from everything we've heard. And she said, you have got to do this. You have got to implement these labor reforms that you passed earlier this year. 
The meeting ended poorly. We know that there wasn't a good explanation there. The Mexican officials were just sort of caught off guard. You know, they didn't have a good explanation for where the money was or wasn't. And so Richard Neal then convened a trip to Mexico a couple of weeks later with a, with a few House Democrats. And they went down and they met with the Mexican president, AMLO. They met with other Mexican officials and got a good explanation then and were able to take that back to Pelosi of showing, you know, OK, this is how much, but how much money they're really going to dedicate to this and they're serious about this. So how did this deal get over the finish line? Getting it over the line, there was sort of this last frantic weekend of negotiations where a lot of pieces fell into place at once. So the U.S. and Mexico struck a deal, they thought, on Saturday morning, and then they called Rich Trumka, they called Nancy Pelosi, they called Richard Neal. They're all in different places, and they spent the weekend sort of nailing down the final pieces. Um, on the labor front, Trumpka was happy with the idea to put together these multinational inspection teams um, to be able to examine those labor complaints firsthand. That's pretty much fit what he had been pushing for the whole time. There's also rapid response panels that made Mexico's private sector sign on because it gives them some time to figure out what to do about a violation before the other countries get involved. Lighthizer had also put forward a demand to tighten the definition for what qualifies as North American steel. That was something that some labor unions really liked. And then on Monday, we know that Rich Trumka called President Trump himself. They've had sort of a rocky relationship, and he called him, and he asked him to consider moving the USMCA along with pension reform, uh, the Butch Lewis Act in Congress, and Trump told him that he would consider it. So that sweetened the deal as well, and Trumka gave his endorsement later that day. How surprised were you? I was surprised that Trumpka ultimately endorsed the deal. We had been looking at their history with trade deals, the AFL-CIO's history, and they hadn't endorsed a pact since the U.S.-Jordan Free Trade Agreement in 2001. So it had been two, almost two decades. Um, and I really thought that the best congressional Democrats in the Trump administration could hope for was neutrality from him. The endorsement was a surprise. I was also surprised by the endorsement. Um, and we will come back to Megan. But... But now we're going to get into the weeds of some of the specifics that they agreed. And we're going to hear from Simon Lester, who is a trade lawyer and who has been following the enforcement angle of this super closely. Simon's at the Cato Institute. Simon, hello. How are you doing? Let's then start by going through this problem that the Democrats were trying to fix, which is about how you settle disputes or or claims that one member isn't living up to to the agreement. Now, in theory, you're you're supposed to have a panel of judges decide who's in the wrong and then authorize some kind of retaliation. And it's that process that everyone has agreed to that that sort of enforces the rules, gives everyone an incentive to stick to them, and then when there are complaints stops them from getting out of control. So let's go right back to the NAFTA. Why did this process not work? To answer that question, let me first take a step back and tell you about the Canada-U.S. free trade agreement. Just briefly, Canada-U.S. FTA is sort of the the predecessor, gets subsumed into the NAFTA. So under the Canada-U.S. FTA, uh, there were five panels that were set up to hear disputes. Uh, They all worked perfectly. NAFTA comes into effect in 1994. First three panels that were set up under the NAFTA, panels were composed, issued the reports, everything works perfectly. What happens then is in 1998, Mexico has a complaint about U.S. sugar programs. And sugar is a really sensitive sector. By 2000, they haven't resolved it. So Mexico requests a panel uh, to hear the case. And in order to get a a panel set up under the NAFTA, uh, you first look to the roster of panelists. It's sort of a, a group that's been established, group of experts that both sides can all agree on. What happened, though, was that the roster had lapsed. 
What that means is if there's no roster in place, the responding party can block with a peremptory challenge any panelist that the complaining party proposes. And that's what happened in this case. The U.S. just said no to everyone Mexico requested. No panel was ever set up. Um, And after that, uh, no panel was ever composed under under NAFTA Chapter 20. Uh, And it's not clear if that's cause and effect. If that panel had had worked in the sugar case, would there have been other panels? I I don't know. But we do know there was a panel blocked uh, and no panels were set up after that. Okay, so this is basically just a bug in in the rules and one that the United States had fixed back in the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, the the TPP. But with Ambassador Lighthizer, we know he's skeptical of binding dispute settlement in general. He's not a fan of that in in the WTO and certainly not in, in this agreement either. And so maybe in the future, they're just planning to use Section 301 to, to unilaterally enforce any offensive interests they, they might have. I remember you saying when the original USMCA text was released a year ago that even though people were saying that these panel blocking problems had been fixed, it didn't seem to be the case to you. So tell us, how did these amendments fix it now? So in this protocol of amendment, I'll just mention two things that they did that I think constitute the fix. The roster previously had to be established by consensus. You'd only have a roster if everybody agreed. Now what they say is, well, if if people can't agree and say one party doesn't want to appoint anyone to the roster, the roster is composed of whoever the other two parties did appoint. So if, theoretically, Mexico and Canada appoint people to the roster and the United States doesn't, you have a roster based on whoever Mexico and Canada appointed. So that's, that's one fix. And the second fix is when you get down to the, 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 dis, the choosing of the panelists, in the past, it, under the prior text, it wasn't clear what would happen if the parties couldn't agree. And so what they've done in the new text is said, look, if the, the responding party isn't acting in good faith to participate in panel selection, uh, the complaining party gets to pick. Uh, to pick. And I, I think that's a great fix. Um, it's something, something I've suggested before, so I was very happy with that. And as long as they follow the principles uh, in the existing text, where, where basically the complaining party gets to pick if the responding party is not acting in good faith, then I think this works. If they follow that principle in the rules of procedure, will be fine. But you know, we, we've seen in the past that that there are people in the U.S. administration, previous administrations, but also the Trump administration, who are a little reluctant to participate in this. So we do have to look carefully and scrutinize what comes out in these rules of procedure. But, But so far, so good, I would say. Simon, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That was Simon Lester of the the Cato Institute. Now we're going to hear from our final guest, who is Kathleen Clausen. My name is Kathleen Clausen. I am an associate professor at the University of Miami School of Law. And before joining the Miami faculty, I worked at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative. So we're going to talk about the amendments that the Democrats got, um, in in particular to the provisions on labor enforcement. And I guess before we should start talking, I should warn listeners that this kind of thing can very easily get fairly deep into the weeds. But, but you know, that matters. You know, enforcement of the labor rules sounds good, but the reality is that, that details of what counts as a violation, what evidence you can use, and, and the legal thresholds, that all really, really matters. And, and so just going back a bit, let's start with the, with the NAFTA. Um, there, the labor rules weren't enforceable at all. 
And over time, U.S. trade deals have strengthened the the enforcement. They've brought the labor rules into the the main trade deal and, and attached enforcement to them. And and one of the things that you see now, um, as a sort of standard, is that that there are various rules set out. But in order to show that there has been a violation, you need to prove that that the violation has happened in a way that has actually affected trade. Um, and that that is going to be important. Um, so, okay, so with all that preamble, um, Kathleen, can you take us through what the major complaints have been about the labor enforcement rules in U.S. trade deals? So the three main problems that I think advocates have pointed to in recent years uh, include, first, that there's not been enough coverage in the in the chapters that have been written in the past. We've been locked into a particular model of, of labor chapter for some time now. And, and many advocates have suggested that it's just not broad enough. It doesn't encompass the real problems that, uh, that workers are facing in our trading partner countries. A second problem is the inability to prove the problems that there actually are happening on the ground. Uh, and that refers uh, to some of the evidentiary problems I, I mentioned a moment ago. That is, we, we don't don't have rules to accommodate and, and recognize uh, worker statements that may be redacted, um, to protect workers that feel unsafe coming forward and actually speaking to a panel, the ability to sort of subpoena uh, the evidence that is to get from the other side, the documentation that may be relevant. So, so these sort of evidentiary problems um, have, have been difficult in the past. The third problem uh, is really just an unwillingness politically to move ahead with these. And, and that may be connected to the earlier two problems, that we, we don't always have a perfect alignment between the problems we're seeing on the ground and what our chapters provide that, that maybe has contributed to why the U.S. Trade Representative and the U.S. Department of Labor have not moved forward with more of these cases, despite that labor advocates have brought them to their table. So, so part of the problem was that these cases were hard to win and, and therefore governments were, were reluctant to take them forward? Yes, I think there was some worry about that. And that was exacerbated after a case that came out in 2017, a decision that came out in 2017 between the United States and Guatemala, where the United States actually did not win the case, despite everyone thinking that the situation in Guatemala was the worst of almost any of our trading partners. So that was a big disappointment. Yeah, so when I was following this, um, it, it very quickly became clear to me that that this Guatemala case was a really sore point uh, for, for a lot of people concerned about labor issues. So could you just walk us through a few more of the details of the case and, and I guess why the U.S. lost? Well, the case turned on a, a series of incidents at different Guatemalan companies where workers' rights were being denied by the companies, and the panel agreed with the United States that that was happening, that not only were the workers' rights being denied, but importantly for the breach of the trade agreement, the panel found that Guatemala had failed to effectively enforce its labor laws. Uh, That's the central tenant of of one of the major provisions of the Central American uh, Dominican Republic U.S. Free Trade Agreement, the CAFTA-DR. But the panel went on to find that Guatemala's failure was not done in a manner affecting trade. Uh, And that's another critical phrase in in the provision. So you have to have both things. You have to show both that it failed to enforce its laws and that that failure was in a manner affecting trade. Uh, And that second part was where, uh, as I said, the United States had presented evidence, the the panel heard it, but came to a different conclusion about what those words meant uh, to the detriment of the U.S. case. 
How does the USMCA try to fix this problem? Well, it does so in a couple ways. Uh, the first is, and this was something that happened before recent development. So in the original text uh, back in 2018, USMCA added a footnote. Every time the phrase manner affecting trade appears, you will find a footnote. And it says, well, what we really meant was this, 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 this. And it, it changes, uh, clarifies the definition of, of that phrase uh, so that future panels don't interpret it the way the Guatemala panel did. Then the second thing that they've done, which is the new piece uh, of, of this of December here, 2019, um, they've actually reversed the burden. Um, and so now it wouldn't be the United States that would have to show that Guatemala's failure occurred in a manner affecting trade. It would be on Guatemala. Of course, here we're talking about Mexico now in, in, in USMCA, not, not Guatemala, but uh, it would be the other side, Mexico or Guatemala, uh, who that would have to then demonstrate that it was wasn't in a manner affecting trade. Uh, and so that distinction really alleviates uh, one of the burdens on, on the complaining party, on the United States, to have to show that in, through evidence in future cases. How, how significant is, is this in particular? I think that that is a significant development. If it was just the footnote, and, and I've commented on this in the past, just the footnote alone, it still leaves so much open to interpretation, right? And a future panel may still read the words in a different way than the U.S. intends, and that's always a possibility in dispute settlement. But to have the, the reverse burden together with the rules of evidence, uh, permitting anonymous statements and, and providing other mechanisms to accommodate these types of cases, I thought that was a significant win uh, from the, for the labor community uh, for, for the, any future cases that we may have. Tell us a bit about this rapid response mechanism. We heard about this from Megan Casella. This is about disagreements in the negotiations over inspectors going into Mexico. What did they end up agreeing? Okay, this rapid response mechanism is incredibly involved. (laughs) It is um, a way through which a a country can send a team of labor experts down to deal, uh, I say down, again, thinking that it's going United States to Mexico, but it's reciprocal, Mexico to the United States, sending a panel of experts to go look at a situation at a particular work site to see if they're denying, if that work site is denying workers' rights. Now, that is something we haven't had before. uh, And the whole idea is to try to remediate, is the term it uses, a denial of rights, and not just any rights, it's specifically for collective bargaining and, and freedom of association. So it's it's far more incident-specific than the other labor enforcement mechanism we were just talking about. It's, it's not that it's a state-to-state mechanism where we're trying to prove that Mexico is in the wrong, but rather the role of the panel is to determine whether workers' rights are being denied at one particular place. Uh, so, so that is is quite is quite a change from what we've seen before. Can you walk us through how exactly a, a dispute would work? Yes. So, once the government, let's let's just say, for argument's sake, it's just simpler to say it's the United States. So, once the United States says, "Okay, we think there's a problem here," there, it has a good faith basis to believe that there's been a denial of collective bargaining rights at this particular work site. Then it raises the issue with Mexico. There's an opportunity for them to have some exchange. Mexico can agree to look into it some way, uh, come back and and report whether it thinks there is a problem or not. Eventually, though, if they haven't been able to solve the problem, 
then the United States would call for the creation of a panel of experts. And that panel would then engage again with Mexico and the United States to get more information. So first there would be some submissions exchanged, Mexico would report on what it knows, the United States has an opportunity to respond. But then the panel of experts can go down and look at the, the work site. I say that with some trepidation because that part is, is, is the least clear part of the, of the, of the protocol uh, of the annex. Uh, but that seems to be the intention, once again, that uh, this, this panel would go examine the situation and make a determination about whether those workers' rights really are being denied. If it does, if it does find that the, the workers' rights are being denied, then the United States may impose what it calls a remedy. And it says uh, that the remedy could include, it's not limited, but it could include uh, the suspension of preferential tariff treatment. It could include um, some other type of penalty, which I've understood to mean like a, a other types of civil penalties that customs uh, typically works with. But it's, it's again, it's not limited. And it does at one point, if it, if it gets bad enough, so to speak, if there are multiple offenses, uh, then it mentions denial of entry of the goods at the border. Now, the only thing I didn't mention in, in describing that to you was one critical piece, which was uh, that at once the, the report or the complaint rather is given to Mexico, at that moment, the United States can stop the goods and basically hold them. Uh, and I think it means suspend liquidation, although it doesn't say that, but for, for our customs folks, I think that's what it means. Um, and, and until such time as the issue is resolved. So, so that is important because as you can tell, there's basically a stay uh, on the goods being able to enter the United States until, until we work this out. Do you see any, any loopholes in this? Any ways that something could go wrong? Uh, sure, there are always loopholes. We're lawyers, <laughs> um, but it depends on your perspective and, and what you think this this mechanism should achieve. So, uh, is it fast? Uh, sure, uh, but there are various loophole moments when it could be slowed. Um, does it impose penalties on on bad companies? Uh, yes, uh, but there are many many steps before that happens. Uh, could it create trade ripples, uh, holding up uh, cross border movement? Uh, yes, uh, but but it's pretty limited, right, to very specific circumstances. So, so there are different types of shortcomings that, that I think are, are, are likely, um, well, at least in part, the result of this text having to walk a very fine line uh, among different constituencies. Uh, and, and I should say that I, I'm not totally clear to me that this is the last word. Uh, there are a number of discussions that listeners will know that are underway uh, about how this text will make its way through Congress. And, and so from my perspective, it's not out of the question that there will be roadblocks or put differently, an opportunity to make improvements where we might find loopholes. Okay, so so there may be some loopholes in, in the text that we've seen so far, but tell us about whether there were any complaints that were not addressed as, as part of this collection of, of amendments. Well, for one, uh, it's still limited to certain circumstances. This this particular rapid review mechanism only permits the types of claims that, we, that we've discussed. So that, I imagine, is, is something that labor advocates might, might want to see uh, changed. But more importantly, it, it still relies on the government that receives the complaint to take action. If uh, labor advocates bring to the attention of the United States a, a problem and the U.S. government chooses not to, to move ahead using this mechanism or the state-to-state -state, uh, traditional mechanism, uh, that is the U.S. government's prerogative and uh, no options for, for private actors to do anything differently. 
Okay, and I guess we're just going to have to trust that the the U.S. government will take out cases. Um, okay, but I just want to make a, a, a kind of general point about this labor enforcement issue. Um, I know this was a really tough negotiation. I know there were concerns about national sovereignty. It's a it's a really tricky issue. I actually I actually spoke to um, Jesus Seade and and obviously he was trying to sell the the deal to me. But he told me about going to the Mexican president and telling him about this labor enforcement stuff and the president saying, you know, this is good for us. Um, and and I think that sometimes this issue can get framed in a way that it is that is not very constructive and partly it's it's sort of the the fault of the framing in in the US which is which is all about making sure that Mexicans are not stealing American jobs but there's an alternative framing which is that these rules and and this enforcement process could actually help lift living standards in Mexico. Basically, the the Mexican government wants labor standards to improve. They've got this labor law that they passed earlier this year. And so basically, the, the, the Americans are helping give Mexican companies an incentive to do something that the Mexican government wants them to do. Okay, so sorry. So with that sort of mini rant over, how likely do you think it is that this sort of language will be repeated in other trade deals? Right. Yeah. No, there is there is something to be said about um, the fact that at the end of the day, Mexico is not the victim in this story, right? and they can do everything that they uh, actually intend to do and can are able to do, uh, and just at the point where they have to throw their hands in the air and say, okay, you know, you suffer the penalties at the hands of the United States. So, so that is, I think, a, a really creative uh, mechanism. The way that this turns this from from a state to state cooperative mechanism to what is really like a a supranational uh, enforcement uh, by U.S customs at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, so why wouldn't other governments embrace that? Um, I, I guess I'm worried less about the other governments, um, although surely they have their own uh, business constituencies that uh, that are putting pressure on them that they have to deal with, but but more so with um, our, our own uh, uh, governments' uh, different predilections for whether this is going to have a negative impact on, on trade. And I'm thinking particularly um, from Republicans who um, weren't involved in this conversation who feel like um, this goes too far. So, so you know, we're at a particularly delicate political moment, to say the least. And so um, maybe just the stars aligned for this to work out in this scenario. Um, and, and we'll have to wait and see if it happens again. Final question. Put all this stuff together. Is this a big deal? So there's no doubt to me that this is, this is a big deal. This is a huge step and breaking away from uh, the uh, unsatisfactory model that we had in, in the past. But there's one big uh, caveat that comes with that, and, and and that is we just haven't seen this play out really in two ways. We ha- we haven't seen this finalized and and you know really uh, put into practice. And then secondly, we we don't have uh, an example to see how this is all going to work. Um, that was the problem in the Guatemala case that we, we thought we had a model that worked, uh, and only to find out that that we hadn't. Uh, so um, remains to be seen, and we're all going to watch this space. Kathleen, thank you very much. Great. Thanks so much for having me. That was Kathleen Clausen at the University of Miami School of Law. Okay, so before we go, we had a final question for Megan, which is, when will this end? So this deal, we could see the House pass it next week. 
It's an open question, though. We don't know how quickly they're going to want to rush it through, but it seems like they want to vote and they could pass it before they leave for Christmas. The Senate says they're going to vote on it after the impeachment trial, so probably sometime in January. But we could see President Trump sign it in early 2020. Megan, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. And that is all for Trade Talks. A massive thank you to Megan and her colleague Sabrina Rodriguez for following this for so long and keeping us all updated through Politico. Yeah, and, and thanks for all of the stakeouts as well. We're going to all fondly remember these uh, as sufficient time passes, I suppose. And thanks also to Simon Lester at Cato for explaining to us the, the broader improvements to the state-to-state enforcement provisions in the new USMCA. Thanks to Kathleen Klassen for downloading all of her labor law knowledge. And thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy, for pulling all of this week's episode together. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bound. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores because two episodes on major news events in one weekend is better than one. Are we sure there's only going to be two? I There's no more hours in my weekend. <laughs> Please. Happy weekend, everybody. <laughs>